MSW Media. This week, the federal government executed a person for the first time in 17 years. Can the death penalty be administered fairly, or is it inherently unjust? Let's get on topic. Welcome to On Topic, a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news. My name's Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a legal analyst. And I'm joined by my friend Patty Vasquez, the host of The Patty Vasquez Show, who joins us regularly on this podcast. But before I bring in Patty, I want to thank our patrons who brought us this episode. With special thanks to Michelle Du, new patron Andrew Donnelly, James Frohmeyer, Jay Gelhausen, Jamie Gordon, Patrick, Steve Hungsberg, Shana Wachinski, and an anonymous patron. You too can become a patron on our website, ontopicpodcast.com. Just click the support link at the top of the page. So, Patty, I have to say, you know, th- this particular uh, podcast on this topic came about differently than many of our topics. You know, usually what happens is I see something in the news and I scramble to find a guest. This is a, a circumstance where I really wanted to have Senator Feingold on our podcast. And I reached out to Senator Feingold and he said this was the topic that he was the most interested in talking about. This is something that really is very close to his heart as a topic. It's something that he's been devoting his time and putting out statements on. And uh, it happened to be that that we're choosing this week because this happens to be the week in which the federal government executed someone for the first time in 17 years. It's really remarkable um, that this is a, a power that is not exercised very, very frequently by the federal government. And yet here we are, uh, and the, and, and there's a bit, there's now a slew of people scheduled for execution by the federal government under the Trump administration. You know, throughout my life, uh, the death penalty is, you know, look, there, there are depictions of executing somebody in, in film and books, you know, and I've been in a interesting situation. Um, we've talked about this before. Uh, my brother was murdered by John Wayne Gacy. I was four years old when my brother disappeared, and I was seven when we learned that my brother was one of his victims. Um, so I, you know, kind of from a very young age knew what it meant to execute somebody, to want to have family members want someone killed as a form of justice. And like my father um, was very, I mean, my, my dad was beside himself. My brother, Mike, was my half brother. And, you know, my, my dad asked me to write a letter for him to Governor Jim Edgar. So Gacy was executed in 1995. And there was some concern. I don't really remember. I was like 22. Uh, and there was conversation about whether or not 
Edgar would stay the execution. And I wrote a very simple two sentence uh, letter to Jim Edgar. My name is Larry Bonin. I wrote it for my dad. My name is Larry Bonin. I'm asking you to please not stay this execution. My brother, Mike, my son, Michael, was murdered. I, I have it somewhere. I kept a copy of it. Um, and after Gacy was executed, nothing changed for my father. Uh, you know, and, and I don't mean like, I don't even know that he was relieved or celebrated. It was just another, you know, it was just another day of loss, you know. Uh, so I always really um, get frustrated, especially because I didn't talk about my family when people would say, when I told them I was against the death penalty, and they would say, well, what about someone like Gacy who's clearly guilty? You know, that's not a good enough reason to to take someone's life to possibly execute somebody uh, wrongfully and and we could talk, I'm sure we're going to talk about this Renato says this came up in your Twitter feed about you know do we have any numbers any studies on how many people have been wrongfully executed and I've also worked with many people who have done incredible work when it comes to the wrongfully convicted and if we've been in situations like that you know where we know that somebody has served time we also know that there's a percentage of people who in our history have been wrongfully executed and are wrongfully convicted and sitting on death row yeah i think that that drives a lot of the discussion you know you you talked about writing to jim edgar he was a republican governor here in illinois and we had a subsequent republican governor george ryan who i should add was later convicted of a felony um but before that he um while he was in office um, he granted clemency to every person on death row in Illinois because he believed that the system was not proper and that we couldn't be sure that everyone uh, was uh, not, you know, was was correctly or rightfully convicted. And I will say that it is really difficult to construct any criminal justice system in a, the real world that is going to be perfect, that doesn't have some element in which it's possible that there's a wrongful conviction, right? Because potentially eyewitnesses can be mistaken or people can give false testimony or something like that. There's always that potential. And so a lot of process is created around the death penalty. In other words, if you are the someone who's on death row, there's a lot of legal process that's created and, and a lot of lawyers who devote time to representing people on death row and it, it ultimately – there's so much process that one question that's been asked, and I'll, we'll definitely have to discuss this with Senator Feingold, is whether it makes sense just even if you believe in the death penalty to have people – to impose the death penalty because doing so creates – in order to be – have any kind of confidence in the, in, in the person being – rightfully convicted there's so much process that goes into it that it, the, the resources that are expended in that aren't even in society's best interest oh no doubt and, and and people don't i think that people who are very uh you know feel very strongly about the death penalty and, and want to keep it in place and want people to be executed for certain types of crimes you know it's it's just uh it's hard to explain from the inside of it and look i don't represent or reflect the feelings of all the families who ha lost a family member to john wayne gacy uh, i know i know that my sisters might feel differently and i just for me i i had watching the pain from my side of it, and again, people using uh, our family as somehow a justification for possibly uh, wrongfully executing somebody, it just has never rested well with me. 
and uh, you know because it, it will never be perfect I, I believe it was I can't remember which Supreme Court justice said that there was a, basically an acceptable percentage of wrongful executions that was tolerable and I and just even saying that sounds absolutely crazy and anti-American yeah it, you know it's an interesting thing look the death penalty for my entire life has drawn such strong feelings I feel like it it did more in the past because, you know, when we – if you think back to the 90s, Patty, you know, if you remember, Bill Clinton was touting the fact that he was uh, supporting and allowing death uh, – the death, uh, death penalty to be imposed in Arkansas is to show that he wasn't that far to the left. In other words, that was during a time when – when uh, when being a, a liberal or progressive or whatever was a bad word at the time, I think. Um, and, uh, you know, that was a, something that was very high energy at the time. But I will say that it's definitely it, it, it's an emotional thing. It, it generate the reason that it's imposes it or excuse me, the reason that it it often generates this debate is it's an emotional response. If people who are victims, for example, who have a different perspective than yours, victims of crime, who feel that it gives them some sort of justice or finality. I mean, one thing I will right. say, somebody who investigated and prosecuted uh, a whole wide variety of crimes, that I don't think it's ever possible to completely make a victim feel that justice has been done because whatever harm has been committed towards them, whether it's you know, um, whether it's it's a, a murder or sexual exploitation or or they've lost their life savings or whatever it may be, you you can never be fully made whole through the criminal justice system, and so um, I think it's it's always something that's going to draw um, a, a lot of debate, and I don't and I don't think it's ever going to be something at least in our lifetimes where there isn't going to be strong disagreement on the subject. Oh, no doubt about it. Yeah, I just think that people who, uh, you know, speak in absolutes, uh, I would try to remind them that they don't speak for me. <laughs> you know? Yeah, for like sure. Like I said. Um, so I guess now I have that sort of freedom and space to talk about it. And um, and I think people are so often surprised. But like I said, and, and, it, and I also have the, uh, um, I guess, the privilege is the best way to put it, of the fact that my brother's murderer was executed. So it's a different, it, you know, it's, it's also not fair to other people to say, well, you know, now I've, now I'm against it. So it's, 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 it's very complicated. Yeah, I think the strongest case to be made for the death penalty to try to present as many different sides of the analysis here are for people who, you know, for example, there's these heinous people who proclaim their guilt and celebrate their crimes, right? The Timothy McVeigh's of the world bomb government buildings and proclaim, you know, and they're proud of that fact, Osama bin Laden, whomever, where I don't think anyone is celebrating their lives. Um, and there, I think, you know, um, there, cause then that takes away any of the process issues or the concerns about their, uh, is this person innocent or uh, any of that sort of stuff. But there are many people who believe, um, that, um, you know, and similarly, by the way, another, I think, argument that we'll, we'll hear a lot of from Senator Feingold is whether or not racism, for example, uh, is contributes to who is, you know, for, for whom the death penalty is imposed versus not because juries, for example, play a role in that, um, that process as well in many states. But, you know, even there, there's a lot of people who feel that 
the human life is sacred and really that that's something that the federal government should not be or the state governments for that matter should be in the business of doing is deciding who lives and who dies in that in that way. I agree. Well, look, before we bring in Senator Feingold, there is one subject that I did also want to talk about, Patty, which is an, an episode that, that we're going to have coming up that I'd love to get feedback from all of you on. And what I'd ask you to do is if you have a feedback to provide on this particular episode, if you um, will either tweet with the hashtag on topic or if you go to our website on topic all one word, you can give us feedback there. And that's, you know, the, one of our patrons, Patty, had talked in our private Facebook group about how he feels that he, he's struggling to find a way to make a difference in this election. He feels compelled to do more in this election year. And I think you and I talked in our last episode about how it's hard for all of us to find ways to get involved. And so what I think would be would be a, a great thing to do, and I'd like to do an upcoming episode is how people can get involved during this election year, even though there's a pandemic, even though a lot of us have maybe less disposable income than we'd like and can't get around to to do a lot of the in-person stuff that we would like to do, right? Uh, you know, getting together to phone bank or getting together to go door to door. Maybe there are things that we could do. And so I'd love for all of you who have found ways to get involved to submit your feedback, and we're going to try to talk about some of those things in the uh, in an upcoming episode, so that we can kind of encourage all of us and, and maybe inspire all of us to do more in this election season. Yeah, and I think that you also had a listener who shared a lot of different uh, ways to get involved and how they've been participating too. So it's a great conversation. I love that. Yeah. So we we're going to do that. So please give us your feedback. Tweet with hashtag on topic. Or just go to our website, ontopicpodcast.com. There's a form you can fill out there to give us feedback, and that's a great way of reaching uh, me and Patty. All right, so now let's bring in Senator Feingold. Uh, if you uh, don't know who Russ Feingold is, you're going to learn over the course of this podcast because I'm going to talk a little bit about his career. But I will just tell you, uh, Russ Feingold was a United States senator uh, from Wisconsin for many years, and he was a hero of mine when I was a young man. Uh, I met him... Uh, when I was interning for Paul Wellstone, who was also a uh, progressive senator. And Russ Feingold is famous as one of the few people who voted against the Patriot Act uh, as the co-author and co-sponsor of the McCain-Feingold campaign finance reform legislation. And as somebody who is not afraid to speak out um, during uh, times when other people uh, would stay silent, uh, he's also... Uh, now, uh, since after he ran uh, for Senate again to get re- retake his Senate seat uh, and, and lost that election uh, in 2016, he is now the president of the American Constitution Society, which is really the progressive alternative uh, to the Federal Society and does a lot of important work. So we'll talk to him about that as well. So now let's bring in Senator Feingold. Welcome to the podcast, Senator Feingold. Thank you so much for joining us. Great to be on. I've been looking forward to it. So as I've already gushed a little bit to our listeners, I'm very excited to have you on. Uh, I uh, was somebody who really looked up to you as I was growing up as a progressive, uh, kind of watching the world unfold in the 90s and 2000s, and uh, had the pleasure of meeting you when I was an intern for Paul Wellstone many years ago. Um, and I will say, you know, one, you know, you were known at that time for being somebody who took courageous stands. And I remember in particular, your vote against the Patriot Act was something that, you know, very, you were, you were very lo- lonely on that vote. 
why was it, you know, a lot of people, in, you know, I think tend to look at polls, uh, tend to sort of follow a, a crowd or a trend. Why, why is it that you were somebody who kind of marched by the beat of your own drummer when you were a senator? Well, it, it's partly just my personality. It's partly the Wisconsin uh, or, orneriness, maybe. But uh, <laughs> it's also, I, I had this feeling that, I, you know, what am I doing here in the Senate? I couldn't believe it. You know, less than 2,000 people have ever been in the Senate. And I thought, you know, the, the privilege of being a senator has to do with upholding the Constitution and to make the right calls at historic moments. And, you know, in the 90s were an important time, but it, you know, it didn't feel like one of those really grave moments in American history. And then all of a sudden on September 11, 2001, that all changed. And we were right there. I was living across the street and the anthrax attack affected our office and the horrible things that happened in New York and Washington. And um, I thought to myself, well, this must be why I'm here. I just got to see if I can make the right calls. And I sort of accepted the idea that there would have to be some updating of the law relating to terrorist attacks. So my attitude wasn't I was going to vote against this no matter what, but they refused to just stick to the point. Um, They put a bunch of provisions in the Patriot Act that had nothing to do with terrorism, really, and were really an opportunity for drug cases and other cases was what Bob Novak, who you might remember, the former conservative uh, commentator, called an old wish list of the FBI. And so I did something that some people think it's a joke when I say it, but it's true. I said, I actually read the bill. And so <laughs> I, I read it and worked with the American Civil Liberties Union and others, and they said, look, there are serious problems here. And I tried to change it. Um, I said, look, let's fix it so we can all vote for this. And frankly, the Democrats were in the majority, led by Tom Daschle, and they refused to change it. And I was horrified that the Senate wasn't doing the right thing to make sure that your library records couldn't be obtained, even though you did nothing wrong. And I ended up basically saying, look, I'm not going to vote for this. I want people to understand there are problems. And I remember my friend Paul Wellstone looking at me like, are you crazy? What are you doing (laughs) voting against this? Because he took some very tough votes. Yeah. And I just thought, look, somebody has to point out there has to be a balance, even at a time of great horror and attack on the United States that you still have to stand up for individual liberty and civil liberties. And over time, people really um, appreciated the vote. But at the time, I I didn't know. I just thought, look, this is what I have to do. And I did it. And, uh, you know, I like to tell the story that for a while there, when I would be introduced to audiences around the country, they would do the introduction and they'd mention my vote against the Patriot Act. And I'd get a standing ovation in the introduction. I didn't get a standing ovation at the end of my speech, but but I got one in the middle because people at least then still had this gut feeling of let's not get carried away because these horrible monsters attacked us. Let's protect our Constitution. So in a, in a nutshell, that's that's why I did it. I read the bill and I didn't like what I saw. Yeah. You know, I uh, ended up becoming a federal prosecutor six years after uh, 9-11 and um, uh, you know, that was how it was viewed. The, the Patriot Act, a lot of those provisions were viewed. As I, I remember hearing people at the time saying, hey, we got all these goodies that law enforcement got. And I remember Sneak and Peek warrants uh, were one of them. Sneak you, and Peek. Yeah. Yes. That was one of the ones we tried to change. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's one. And you know, occasionally, you know, we would talk about, well, do we want to try a Sneak and Peek warrant? They're always in dr- narcotics cases. 
And it was essentially you'd go so you could essentially break into somebody's home without telling them, you know, look at stuff and then surreptitiously leave. I mean, that's essentially what sneak and peek warrants are. Um, and, you know, they're very controversial now. And you'll see that they're used primarily in narcotics cases and often against uh, people of color and so on. And there's a lot of a lot of uh, debate about that today. And, of course, I mean, people are also obviously we've had a lot of talk about wireless surveillance, uh, warrantless, excuse me, warrantless surveillance and so forth. Um, you know, I'm curious, do you feel vindicated in part because of some of what's come out since that time? Well, I certainly think the record proved exactly what you just said, and you were in a better position to observe it than I was. Uh, the statistics bore out the fact that things like the library records and the sneak and peek provisions, for years they weren't even used once in a terrorism case. It was it was opportunity knocks. It was a ruthless opportunity by the government to insert provisions that were unrelated, uh, and it was uh, it was very inappropriate because it was a must-pass bill. I saw that happen a number of times, but I thought it was particularly inappropriate when it came to uh, an historic moment like that to abuse it in that way. So, you know, over time, people joined me uh, in raising questions about this, uh, people like Barack Obama when he was a senator uh, and others. Um, unfortunately, uh, the changes have not been made uh, in the legislation that should have been made. Uh, many years ago, these provisions are still there. They're still open ended. And even the ones that were sunsetted are frequently renewed. So it's a uh, it's the problem when you as you know, when you when you limit people's rights legally, it's awfully hard to get them back. And that this is a good example of it, even though there's enormous opposition to many of these provisions in particularly in conservative states in places like Montana and Alaska, and Wyoming. That's where some of the greatest opposition emerged to the Patriot Act after people found out what was in it. Yeah, it's really interesting to me that the people who otherwise were very concerned about civil liberties uh, nonetheless supported this. But, of course, at the time, we had a president with something like 90 percent approval rating. After the terrorist attacks, people wanted to come together. And if that's the legislation that the president wanted, uh, this was George W. Bush at the time, he was going to get it. Yeah, and that was an unfortunate failure on the part of the Democrats. We made the mistake twice. We were in the majority in the U.S. Senate. We voted for the Patriot Act without changing it, and we uh, voted for the Iraq War. I did not, of course, but a majority of the Democrats in our caucus, as well as the Republicans, voted for the Iraq War. And all of this was about being afraid of being accused of not being concerned about terrorism. In fact, it even involved arguments that I heard and I found horrifying that we ought to go into the Iraq war. Otherwise, we're, we ought to support the Iraq war. Otherwise, we're going to lose the majority in the United States Senate. I mean, literally sending 4,000 American troops to their death uh, because of a political calculation, which was wrong. We lost the majority anyway in 2002 in the U.S. Senate. So that actually was a low point for me in my political career, watching people I respect and like saying, well, you know, we better vote for this war. Voting for war should not be based on political calculation. I, I have a question about this because uh, I, I just ran for office and was not successful as a state representative. But I, you know, I struggle with having this conversation in the sense that when you know what the right thing is, and you are people are swayed by the fear of not being reelected, of not getting that support from special interests, whether it's money or, you know, the popularity in a moment like that. What do you say to people who should have the responsibility of carrying forward the ideals of the Democratic Party? 
Well, I think you have to look at being elected office with perspective. I mean, you shouldn't be foolish. I mean, if, if something is just overwhelmingly uh, of concern to your constituents and you're not really an expert about it, you know, for example, when it came to, you know, dairy policy and cows, you know, I didn't pretend I knew more than my constituents here in Wisconsin. But when it came to some fundamental values about the Constitution, uh, you got to take the chance that you might lose your job if you stand up for that right. And that that really uh, is a, is something that you find out in elective office, that when you stand up for principle, you know, some people might get mad at you, but in the long run, it probably won't affect your whether you win the election or not. And you're certainly going to feel better about yourself that you actually stood up for something you believe in. Being in office is not a be-all and end-all. It's great, but it's not the only thing that's worth doing. And you have to know what you're willing to lose your job for. And so for me, uh, this kind of issue, including the issue we'll be talking about soon, the death penalty, was something that if people were that upset that I was opposed to the death penalty, I was prepared to lose. Now, you don't want to have too many of these things because that's, <laughs> you know it's arrogant and the people have a right to be represented. But if it's based on, on principle and in particular belief in the Constitution, you know, it's worth losing to stand up for those things. And, you know, in the long run, as this interview proves, I've been at office 10 years. Um, that's what lasts. It's not that you had your name on a door for a number of years. Yeah, I, I often find people forget that the whole point of getting elected is to do something with it and to do what you what you believe in, I would think. Uh, otherwise, what's the point of getting elected to an office, right? Uh, if you're not yeah, I remember something. that. That's well said, because I remember when I was having some concerns about continuing funding of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars, and and I was the deciding vote at that point. If I didn't vote to get off of a defense bill, it would have meant Obamacare wouldn't have passed. And um, I felt very, I was determined to not vote for a or let a defense bill through that continued those things. But President Obama called me up and he said, look, I got to go to Germany now. This is it. I, I, I need your help here. And I thought to myself, well, this is my principle, but my slowing this bill down is not going to stop the war. And if I don't vote for it, 70 years of effort to try to get health care for all Americans will go down the tubes. And I, I literally thought what you just said. Right now. I thought, why am I here? Well, if I'm not here you know, to to vote for health care for 30 million Americans who didn't have health care, then, you know, I probably shouldn't be here. And so, you know, I voted for it. And I, maybe I lost because of that. You know, that that was the year when they used the health care bill uh, as the uh, very falsely as the crusade to, to defeat a lot of people, including me. It, it was still worth it because that has proven to be a very serious step in the right direction. That, that's why I was there. And so that was an example of of knowing that I was voting for something that was going to get me in a lot of trouble and, and yet it was worth it. You Do you feel, you know, there's been a lot of criticism uh, from progressives of Senate Republicans not holding uh, President Trump accountable, not being a check on his power. Uh, do you feel that things have changed, that Congress has become, has become more swayed with political or momentary motivations, or do you think that that's just how Congress has always been? I think it's gotten a lot worse. Um, you know, when I came to the Senate in 1992, you know, one of the things that people thought was really kind of cool or fun was whether if you, if you worked with somebody from the other side. 
And there was a real good humor about it. You know, like if you started doing a bill like I did with John McCain, uh, you know, one of the Republicans would say, you know, uh, I remember uh, uh, Phil Graham of Texas say, John, come away, come away from here. You want to hang around with Feingold, you're going to get in trouble. You know, there was sort of a, a, a spirit of, hey, you know, you're in the Senate, you're going to work with the other party. Well, that changed. It started to change in 2004, and then it became dramatically changed in 2010 when the Tea Party took over. They started uh, threatening people for uh, working with Democrats, um, and they defeated Richard Lugar and Bob Bennett. And uh, I remember one time I was at a town meeting when uh, people were getting pretty mad at me uh, from the right during the Tea Party period, and I was talking about climate change. And I said, look, uh, Lindsey Graham of South Carolina is working with John Kerry on climate change. And they all started yelling and said, well, he's a rhino, Lindsey Graham, a Republican in name only. And I thought, oh, wow, this has gotten to the point where you're going to be punished for working with the other side. And sure enough, Lindsey Graham is the most embarrassing example of somebody who just to save his skin has completely changed who he was. He was one of the best supporters John McCain and I had on campaign finance when he was in the House. And now all he does is try to play up to John McCain or to uh, to Donald Trump uh, because he's fearful of being thrown out of office by the right in South Carolina. And I think that is different than it used to be. I don't think there's any question about it. The fear of being primaried from the extreme of your party, particularly on the Republican side, has really done enormous damage to the Senate and to the government. Do you look? Many people know you best as the 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 Feingold and McCain Feingold as somebody who, um, w- you know, was at, on the forefront of that campaign finance uh, legislation. Do you feel like you could have done more? Do you feel you know? Obviously, campaign finance now people feel worse than ever about the influence of money in our politics. It's got it, obviously because of the Supreme Court, things have moved in in a in a, in a, a bad negative direction. What, what what do you do? You wish you you had included something more in that legislation, or done something more when you were a lawmaker? Oh, there's no question. We got all we could at the time. In fact, that's that's what happened. Is that we were very successful. We were able to ban unlimited soft money uh, contributions to the political parties, uh, which was the big problem at the time. And uh, actually, what happened between after we passed the bill from 2004. Uh, to 2010 until Citizens United, it was really working quite well. And people were turning to the internet uh, to raise small dollar contributions. There weren't these unlimited dark money contributions that now are allowed by Citizens United. And in fact, the Citizens United case was a response to our success. That McCain-Feingold actually had been the, the most prominent bipartisan bill of the last 40 or 50 years. And it was really reforming the whole system because people were going to small dollar contributions, especially on the internet. Well, the right and the big corporations were terrified. They didn't like the way things were going. And so they went ahead and engineered a lawless decision that really overturned 100 years of law, the Tillman Act in 1907, signed by Teddy Roosevelt. And so that did enormous damage. It really undercut the value of what we did. But no, there was no way we would have gotten more at the time Uh, And I'm glad that the members of Congress now under Senate Bill 1 and others are looking to bring back real campaign finance reform at some point. 
Yeah, I, is that does that have something to do with why you've chosen to become the president of the American Constitution Society, which is, as I discussed uh, earlier with our listeners, an organization that focuses a lot on making sure that our courts aren't uh, moving too far to the right? That's right. Yeah, Citizens United, the campaign finance is just one example of what has happened to our federal courts, where they're so dominated by conservative and corporate interests that it is doing enormous damage to almost every aspect of our legal system. Yes, campaign finance. Yes, the Voting Rights Act, which was a horrible decision, the Shelby decision, Shelby County decision. Almost every decision being way too favorable to corporate litigants as opposed to individuals and consumer cases and others. Uh, a whole range of decisions, such as reapportionment, where the court did not allow uh, restrictions on partisan gerrymandering. So what the American Constitution Society is about is challenging this uh, domination of the federal courts by ideologically driven, very conservative people vetted by the Federalist Society who have essentially agreed in advance to not be independent on issues such as women's right to choose, such as issues of reasonable gun regulation consistent with the Second Amendment. They use litmus tests and they are strict. The American Constitution Society wants a grassroots uh, designation of people to be appointed to the federal courts who will be diverse, who will be fair, and will allow every individual to go to court thinking they have a fair shot. And that's not where we're at now. And now with 200 new judges jammed through by Trump, many of them very young, uh, who could live a long time and be in the court for a long time, what you have is a, an attempt by one generation to control the federal courts for several generations to come. So uh, the American Constitution Society has over 200 student chapters and over 50 lawyer chapters, many of them young lawyers. These brilliant young progressive lawyers are going to be cut out of the opportunity to have a fair chance to advance the law in a progressive direction if we are not able to counter what the what the right has done to the courts. And so... They have stolen the courts, including the st stealing of the Scalia seat that was supposed to be filled by Barack Obama. And I took this job to get into the fray again to fight back against the overall attack on the rule of law in our courts that the right has, has mounted uh, way too successfully uh, in the last 10 or so years. Well, we're going to talk, a big focus of our podcast recently is about how all of us and listeners and so forth can get involved. We'll, so we'll talk at the end about how 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 our listeners can get involved and support the uh, support ACS. But I do want to talk, of course, because there was a Supreme Court decision this week uh, that came out a 5-4 decision, unsigned decision, which the four progressive justices uh, dissented from, permitting a death penalty, the death penalty to be imposed, which it was at 2 a.m. Um, can you talk uh, about why you think that we should be paying in a time when people are focused on many other things, why we should be paying attention uh, to that important event. Well, this is a terrible change. We have not had a federal execution, a federal death penalty, uh, death row inmate for 17 years until this week. There was a moratorium on it because there was a growing consensus in this country that it is wrong to execute people. We now have 22 states in this country. There were only a couple of them many years ago, 22 states that have banned the death penalty, several more 
where governors have imposed moratoriums. And particularly when it came to the federal death penalty, there are all kinds of problems with inadequate legal representation, with the fact that uh, the people convicted on for death row and, uh, and the death penalty are not there because of crimes that are of a particular federal character. In other words, uh, there aren't people there that have to do with terrorism. It's just like the Patriot Act that we already discussed. It's it's an opportunity to bypass state law and convict people that could have been convicted at the state level and be dealt with in terms of their own state laws. And then you have these whole lethal injection protocols that have not been properly vetted or gone through the administrative law process. So from almost every point of view, a geographical bias, but in particular, racial and ethnic bias, the federal death penalty is seriously flawed. Uh, the, uh, there's an enormous concentration of people of color uh, who are on death row. 35 of the 62 people on federal death row are people of color, and 15 of the 20 who are on, have gone to death row in the fifth, from the Fifth Circuit are people of color. And so what this was was a cynical attempt choosing intentionally, I think, to uh, execute uh, white people who are in death row, to somehow pretend that this is a neutral, appropriate, some people call it the gold standard of the death penalty, as horrible as that terminology is. The fact is that I decided as president of ACS that one of the first things I wanted to do, because I'm very new on the job, is to make sure we recognize that racial injustice, of course, is an overriding concern in this country and to our organization. We devoted a good part of our virtual convention in June to the events flowing out of the George Floyd killing. And of course, policing and incarceration and in those areas are critical institutions in terms of racial injustice. But so is the death penalty. The death penalty is an extreme example of racial injustice in the United States. And the federal death penalty is a very serious example of it as well. So my goal, is that the American Constitution Society highlights the range of issues that have to do with racial injustice, and that in particular, the immorality, and I think the unconstitutionality of the death penalty has to be brought back to the fore. I tell you, unless we were talking about this today and a few others, a lot of people wouldn't have even noticed that they've already executed two people this week. This is the ultimate act within a racist system by the government. It's an intentional act. It's not a policeman who's not following the rules or acting inappropriately with other policemen. It is actually the government consciously and intentionally choosing to kill somebody when it is unnecessary. And I have been passionate about this ever since I was a kid, as many other people are. It's time to get rid of this death penalty. The majority of Americans now say they're not for it. I think a majority of states are, are very likely soon to be against it. And I'm hoping that um, the Supreme Court will have a chance to look at this generally again, uh, or even some people have talked about a constitutional amendment. Justice Stevens, the late Justice Stevens, suggested six constitutional amendments recently. He suggested one that would ban the death penalty. So I want to heighten this issue, especially because of racial injustice, but in general. It's time to leave the death penalty behind in this country. Yeah, it's interesting to talk about um, racial justice. We've we've had a lot of conversation about that recently in terms of law enforcement and and issues of sort of structural racism and structural bias that are in in inside our just criminal justice system. And what I think a lot of people don't realize is in many states, imposition of the death penalty also 
um, involves a jury and involves a jury making a determination, which, of course, means that our general societal attitudes towards race can get reflected in punishment. And I think that's something that, um, uh, you know, uh, people, I think, often don't think about in terms of, look, our jury system, there are a lot of positives to our jury system. But one of the concerns about it, of course, is that it, it reflects some of our own prejudices and bias that we have in our society. And so it really doesn't surprise me that as a result, um, with, you know, not only because of potential jury bias, but obviously potential uh, racism throughout the entire system, that uh, that we have the result that you said. Yeah, and if you look at the where a lot of the death penalties come from in the country, you know, it's not really a national punishment. It tends to be based on places that have a, a much more horrible background in terms of some of the of race issues. Um, it's geographically con uh, concentrated, the number of the death sentences in places like Virginia and Texas and Missouri. It's a half of all of them. Uh, in terms of the circuits, the legal the court of appeal circuits that you're so familiar with, the fourth and fifth and eighth circuits constitute over two thirds of the of the death sentences. And then throw on top of this, even if you have a fair jury, there's huge discrepancies between the districts in terms of, of how they appoint counsel, whether or not adequate counsel is appointed and whether there's adequate funding for capital defense. So there are elements of uh, enormous bias on top of the possibility of a jury that may, be, may not be fair to a person of color. Patty, I think we have some questions from our listeners. I thought I'd, I'd, I'd kick it to you for that. Absolutely. Uh, one listener would like to know why now? Why uh, are, are executions coming back? Why has there not been a federal execution in so long? Well, first of all, there hasn't been one for a long time because of the growing sentiment in the country that this is the wrong thing for the federal government to do. A growing uh, disillusionment with the death penalty, trying to join the majority of countries in the world that no longer have the death penalty. I think people realize this is a pretty barbaric practice. But at the federal level in particular, a lot of concerns have been raised about the fact that it's geographically biased, it's racially biased, it, it takes crimes that are supposed to be specific to the threat to the national government and national security and use those, and it isn't using it for those purposes, that the people in the federal uh, death penalty cases have often not been represented by the best lawyers, that there's poor legal representation, and there's also a more restricted review of the death penalty in the federal court, um, they actually let allow less review than at the state court. So in cases where people have intellectual disabilities, that kind of a claim, which is so crucial that even the Supreme Court acknowledges is crucial, the ability to really review that at the federal level is worse than at the other level. So these questions have, in addition to, of course, the problems with the lethal injections that have come up in recent years. So I think there was a feeling, in fact, I once, uh, when I was in the Senate, I proposed a banning the federal death penalty and advocated for a moratorium on the federal death penalty. I think there was a feeling that this should be left behind at the federal level. Why are they doing this now? Well, you can only speculate. It is a potentially a terrible motive, a political motive, to try to use this dissent and difficulty now on racial issues to uh, play the tough guy, to show that the federal government can, can go ahead and do this kind of a thing. And I uh, deeply regret uh, this being used at what is obviously an inappropriate time to resume the federal death penalty. It's a, it's a rush, rush to judgment and rush to execution. 
Uh, and uh, I don't think we have to th look very far beyond uh, the actions uh, that have been taken in other contexts to see what this is really all about. Yeah, I, th I will say this is definitely um, a, a time when people are focused elsewhere. Uh, I think that many of our listeners have talked about how they're just overwhelmed by the sheer amount of news that's coming out every day. I mean, we're in the midst of a pandemic and a recession and all sorts of, you know, unconstitutional behavior by the president and all sorts of, uh, you know, outrage and obviously, you know, uh, uh, certainly a national conversation about racism. And all these things are happening and this is sort of kind of got thrown in there. You, I wonder, you know, if if the timing in part was because attention wouldn't be paid uh, to the subject at this time. Yeah. And that's why it's so important to see it for what it is. This is about racism. This is about a system that is inherently biased against people of color. And so we can't let this moment pass as strong as our concerns are about policing uh, and access to the courts and the uh, many ways in which uh, African-Americans and others are disadvantaged, particularly during the COVID-19, we can't uh, not use this moment to highlight the range of things that are inherently biased in our society. And the death penalty is a very dramatic example that not only stands on its own, but it helps us realize what a fundamental change we have to make if this is gonna be a fair society for the diverse community that America is right now. And so this isn't just something out there, something that's coming in for the moment. This is part of the broader struggle. And there will be many other issues that the American Constitution Society will highlight in this regard. Uh, but I believe this should be added to the mix because this is government at the highest level committing the ultimate act of execution against those who have less opportunity to avoid the penalty because they are people of color. You know, uh, one thing that I think our listeners may not be aware of is that, you know, you mentioned uh, uh, Justice Stevens uh, a little while ago. You know, he joined the court in the 70s. And back it, during that time period, there was actually a period of time where there was a national moratorium on the death penalty the, that the Supreme Court imposed. And even after it rolled it back, it really only allowed death penalty cases to go forward in limited circumstances. Uh, you know, and that's something that's chronicled very well. Bob Woodward wrote a book called The Brethren, in which he chronicles that whole era of the Supreme Court that I had read years ago. You know, it, it seems to me like this is something where if there was a change in the courts, which, of course, is what the organ, you know, ACS is, in, is, is focused on, that there could potentially be a change even without a constitutional amendment. I think that's absolutely right. You know, it's been said, of course, that the arc of history is long. Uh, but it bends toward justice. And I think that's where we're heading on this thing. When I was a little guy, nine years old, the last execution for that era was uh, in California, Carol Chessman. And I remember seeing CBS reports and thinking, wow, uh, there's not going to be a death penalty anymore. And it all, it, it, you know, as you know, as a close observer of the court, uh, they finally, uh, in 1972, in Furman versus Georgia, even though they didn't outlaw the death penalty completely, they said, you know, the way it's being applied is unconstitutional. It looked like it was done. Uh, but then the political mood shifted. And in 1976, in Gregg versus Georgia, they went back to the death penalty. Uh, and it went, came back in, in it with a vengeance, uh, particularly led by Texas. You might remember that George Bush, uh, the second George Bush, actually, uh, even though he was involved with many of the 
approval of the executions in Texas said he never lost a night's sleep about it. Well, that insensitivity uh, has changed over time. Uh, many people have become very concerned about it. A turning point for me, in terms of my belief about how this can change, was in Illinois in 1999 and 2000, when a group of young law students, some of them from Wisconsin, had an innocence project and proved that a number of the people on death row were actually wrongly convicted. And um, actually, since 1973, 170 people who were on, sent to death row have been proven to be wrongly convicted. And so uh, it looked to me, and this is the reason I proposed the ban on the federal death penalty at that time, it looked to me uh, when Governor Ryan, a, a conservative Republican from Illinois, proposed the first modern moratorium at the state level in Illinois, it looked to me like this was going to end. But then came 9-11. So 9-11 changed the mood. Obviously, people thinking federal death penalty is going to be used on terrorists, which it really hasn't been, uh, except for Tim McVeigh primarily. And so, um, you know, it had to go back to the states. But over time, the states have responded. And as I've indicated, you know, way back when, I think Wisconsin and Michigan were the only states that didn't have the death penalty. Now there are 22. And so what the court has done, uh, even though I disagree with the court on many issues, in modern years, as you know, they've said, wait a minute, you can't execute people who are under 18. That's against reasonable modern standards. You can't execute people who are mentally incompetent. Uh, and so they've set the stage to take a look at the overall view of, the, of, of what people think is cruel and unusual punish, punishment. And this is the crucial sort of constitutional point. Uh, the Federalist Society and others pretend that they are, you know, very strict about following the, the, the wishes of the founders of the country. And they say, look, the founders believed in the death penalty, so what's wrong with having it now? But you know what? The founders could have said in, in the Bill of Rights, in the Eighth Amendment, they could have said, uh, we, are, uh, we are banning putting people in stocks, we are banning whipping people, we are banning torture, but they wouldn't have said the death penalty at that time because they thought it was okay at the time. That isn't what they said. What they said was that there shall be no, quote, cruel and unusual punishment, unquote. And I think that was an, is, in fact, a wise open invitation from the drafters of the Bill of Rights led by James Madison to apply the standards of the time you live in. And I think the United States Supreme Court, I think you're right, even this court, although highly unlikely, but a court that just changes a little bit in the next couple of years could follow in what uh, happened with uh, same-sex marriage and some of the other decisions that have surprised people. I could see the United States Supreme Court overturning the death penalty based on modern standards that this does now constitute cruel and unusual punishment. And I think it would be well-received. So that would be a wonderful thing if it happened that way. A lot can be done legislatively, both at the state and federal level. Uh, a lot can be done. Uh, another way to do it would be a constitutional amendment. But one way or another, um, I think we may be entering a period where that can happen. And I think these cruel, uh, sudden executions at the federal level may actually hasten the day because it reminds people of how inappropriate it is for our U.S. government to be involved in this kind of activity. You know, that I think that really is a good point for us to bring in another listener question, because I think they had a question directly related to this uh, topic, Patty. 
Yes, you mentioned, sir, that uh, that there was an innocence project in in Illinois where they found that there were people who were on death row wrongfully. But have there been any studies of how many innocent people the government have has killed? Well, that is a difficult subject because uh, once people are killed, of course, it's much more difficult. The statistic I gave you earlier on the federal death penalty is they think that 170 people were wrongly convicted and have been were released. One thing I read is estimated that actually 18 people were actually executed where there was strong evidence of innocence. But of course, that was never actually adjudicated. It is possible that it can be adjudicated after somebody is executed. And so it's possible. But that's um, the information I have at this point. Yeah, I um, you know, I actually looked into this subject because I thought that question was so interesting and well put from one of our listeners. And, you know, if you look at the Death Penalty Information Center, they talk about how, you know, it is very difficult to determine the answer to that, as you said, uh, Senator, that, you know, courts don't really look at claims of innocence once the defendant is, is, has died. And obviously defense attorneys uh, move on to other cases, uh, which is exactly right. I will say that as now as a practicing lawyer, uh, we don't, uh, we usually, you know, we've got enough on our plates that we're focused on, on the case at hand. But they did list 18 cases where they, they, they call them executed, but possibly innocent. And, you know, I think in our current system, um, it is really, uh, you know, I think it is very hard to imagine any system, criminal justice system, where we can't, where we can rule out error or rule out a potential uh, wrongful conviction. That's just the reality of the system that we have, where we're relying on eyewitness testimony, on confessions, on, um, you know, other types of testimony from, from people and so forth. It's, it, 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 there are obviously cases, you mentioned Timothy McVeigh, where the person's proclaiming their guilt. But, but you know, aside from those limited set of cases, uh, there always can be some, uh, some disagreement there. That's right. I mean, it's irreversible. That's an obvious inherent defect in the death penalty uh, that that mistakes can be made. And there's no justification for that. People can be incarcerated. People can be incarcerated for life. And uh, that I think most of us believe that that is a sufficient uh, and serious punishment that is appropriate for a modern society. One uh, uh, argument against the death penalty, the guarantee against the imposition of the death penalty that I'd be curious to hear your reaction to was made by my former boss, Pat, uh, Patrick Fitzgerald, who was a sort of a legendary prosecutor. And when he was um, United States attorney in, in Chicago in the Northern District of Illinois, he reportedly I wasn't part of this conversation, but reportedly in a conversation with a lot of bigwigs in the Justice Department, argued that. The death that the the Justice Department DOJ should not be seeking the death penalty because the sheer cost in the process that would be taken to ensure that the person, uh, you know, that that went from start to finish was so high that it just wasn't worth the resources, and that DOJ would be better spent and it would better spend taxpayer dollars and time and energy on investigating other crimes and prosecuting uh, other cases rather than, you know, going through the long process that will be required to ensure that a death penalty was imposed. Well, of course, you know, that argument, in my view, is not the lead argument because this is an immoral and unconstitutional act, but it is something that is part of the argument. Uh, and a lot of people, including some conservatives, are responsive to it. I mean, take, for example, what just happened today. Wesley Perky was executed by the United States government today. 
but he was convicted in 2003. So 17 years later, uh, he is finally executed. And the cost, uh, legal costs, cost of keeping a person in a situation like that, the actual cost of maintaining uh, the facility in Terre Haute for the executions. Apparently, there's 100 people involved in one of these executions. Uh, it is very costly. And actually, a lot of conservatives over the last few years, as you well know, have joined the movement to get away from our being the country in the world that has the most, basically the most people incarcerated because they've had it with the cost. Uh, and so this is an excellent example of something that is morally wrong, constitutionally wrong, racially and ethnically misapplied, but also is very expensive and certainly not worth the cost. And so that is something that um, I think will be highlighted, uh, not only at the federal level, but it's very expensive for the states that still have the death penalty. And there are hundreds of people, I think 700 people on death row in California. And they came close to... Uh, well, they had an election uh, referendum that almost made it a few years ago to ban the death penalty. And a lot of people think that it will ultimately succeed. But right now, uh, they're not executing people and there's 700 people on death row, uh, which is a very expensive proposition. Yeah, as, I've ex as I explained earlier, I mean, the process, the legal process is very significant. And of course, there's often in certain states, I know when I, when I was a law clerk in a federal court in, uh, in, the, in the Fifth Circuit in Texas many years ago, there was a lot of concern there just about finding the right, you know, right lawyers to handle those cases. It's, there's not, there's a lot of lawyers who just don't have the expertise even to, to handle those cases. So it's, it's definitely something that even regard, putting everything else aside, there's a lot, I think there's a lot of sort of, as you point out, resource arguments, arguments that appeal to people who are not really morally troubled or concerned about the misapplication of the death penalty. Yeah, some of these people that were executed this week and the other two that may well probably will be executed in the next few weeks. Um, in a number of these cases, the, the counsel just wasn't adequate, that they were not people that were uh, well versed in the law in terms of, of representing somebody in a case like that. Uh, the case of Keith Nelson, who's scheduled to be executed in late August, uh, is, is a very good example of ineffective counsel. Uh, and so uh, when people hopefully hear that, they realize, well, wait a minute. Um, it's one thing to say, well, so-and-so should have thought of that before they committed the murders. In our system, having a right to a capable and competent lawyer has got to be part of the equation, uh, whether you think the death penalty is a good idea or not. I, I think that that part of it, I think, hopefully there's not going to be an argument about. Well, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you, people that are hell-bent on using the government to execute people, they'll use just about any argument under the sun. Indeed. It definitely, as I, I had mentioned earlier, definitely something that it, it, it seems like the arguments for the death penalty draw more on emotion um, and on, a, on passion. And this is something that is, in my entire lifetime, although it's waning as of late, it has definitely been something that has evoked very strong emotions in people, uh, not in, in ways that I can't completely understand other than for people who are themselves victims of crime. Well, it is emotional. And, you know, there's, if you're not human, if you don't look at, at one of these horrible crimes, frankly, some of the ones that have been committed by the people that are being executed right now, you can't not think about a eight-year-old child being killed or 16-year-old girl being raped and murdered and say, well, you know, uh, this person was misunderstood or something. Of course not. Um, you know, th these are heinous crimes. 
uh, for which there has to be very serious punishment. And so the trouble is, is that it gets reduced into sort of discussion about, well, don't you think this person doesn't deserve to live because of what they did? Well, that's a whole nother level. Being punished, being imprisoned for life, that's one thing. But to have the federal government actually eliminate your life, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, is not consistent with uh, the modern views in most of the world of the appropriate response to that kind of a situation. Well, Senator, there are a lot of people, most of the people who listen to our podcast are very interested in issues of, of the law, uh, in the legal system. They're interested in um, trying to obtain more justice in our society. And there's thousands of people listening to this right now who are who don't know a lot about ACS, who want to potentially not only move this issue forward that you've talked so passionately about today, but a number of others. So how can people get involved? What can they do if, if somebody's listening to this and they say, OK, I want to support ACS, I want to get involved, uh, both as a lawyer, both for lawyers and then for people who aren't lawyers? What can what non-lawyers do? Well, first go to the website, acslaw.org, and take a look at the range of things that, that we're involved with. This is a unique organization. It's the only combination of progressive lawyers and law students in the country that really is able to coalesce together to advance things that we care about, but also to provide programming so that the kinds of issues you and I are talking about are highlighted in a way that you get to listen to the top legal and other experts in the country and even connect with them if you want to get involved, whether as a law student, a lawyer, or a member of the public. So for example, we were able when this COVID-19 came up to hold a series of, of webinar programs that you can get access to uh, on our website that talked about the way in which people were being hurt in addition to the obvious health issue by the unfairness of the way COVID-19 is playing out. So one of our uh, programs, and each of these got uh, hundreds of people listening, was about you know access to the courts access to justice during the COVID-19, the problems that exist in that regard. Another was about workers' rights, the ways a number of workers are being treated uh, by uh, companies like Amazon and others who are being put in a, pos a position that causes them to be in great danger uh, because they happen to be people that have to go to work in a setting where they probably shouldn't. We talked about access to health care, about what happens when you're incarcerated. Um, you know, what, if you're sentenced to 10 years in jail, that sentence does not include risking your life uh, because, there, because there's a pandemic and you have to stay in jail. That is not part of the sentence. And yet this happens and it leads to a, another problem, which we're discussing here in several contexts, the racial and other injustices for people of, of color of the disproportionate impact of COVID-19 on Native Americans, on African Americans, on Latinx people, on Asian people and others. And so we have the unique capacity to convene these sessions, often in person, but now uh, through the webinars, uh, in a way that allows people to really get at the information. One person described this because we're all cooped up in our houses and stuff. Uh, she said, you know, I really listened to your virtual national convention and the programming because it was like brain candy. In other words, something you could get into and connect with other people during this time about something that really matters. We have uh, all kinds of activities uh, around the country. 
The 50 lawyer chapters uh, hold programs on these critical legal issues and issues involving our government uh, that are open to the public. Uh, I know we have an excellent chapter in Madison, Wisconsin and Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and uh, the chapters at over 200 law schools in the country do this. So um, I think people would find it easy to access. And uh, we also are very involved uh, in preparing for the possibility uh, that there could be different people appointing, appointed to judgeships and major legal positions in the U.S. government. We have uh, 50 working groups across the country that are identifying uh, people who would be good judges, good lawyers in the government, who would be uh, qualified but represent diversity, demographic diversity, but also diversity of practice, such as being public defenders or community activists, and who would allow a person to go to court and feel like they're getting a fair shake. And so we are leaders in that regard as well. So um, it does a lot, the organization does. It's a grassroots organization, but uh, we do try to identify certain issues for special attention. And that's what I'm trying to do this week with highlighting the resumption of the federal uh, death penalty. Wow. Well, thank you so much, Senator Feingold. I appreciate you joining us. I learned uh, a lot from this, and I, I know a lot of our listeners did as well. Well, thanks to both of you, and I look forward to coming on again. Thank you for joining us for this episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast, go to your app and review the podcast, and join us for our next episode. I'm Renato Mariotti. Until next time, let's stay on topic. On Topic.